Avantgarde, welcome to the Blockchain People podcast, powered by Decor, the decentralized objective research engine. At Decor, we specialize at creating institutional grade research for capital institutions to find the true innovators and disruptors in decentralized ledger technologies. As you can see, we are doing this podcast to help educate the public and create an audience for the decision makers in the blockchain space. If you'd like to support this mission, all we will ever ask you to do is to hit the subscribe, follow, like, or whatever button you currently have in front of you. Pell is currently the CEO of Notabene. Notabene. And he's been in 20 years, for 20 years, in crypto, ID, and fintech. He describes himself as an old school crypto nerd. <laughs> he co-founded Uport and Kipochi, and he has also worked in X in consensus, doximity, and Alta Vista, the Google of the past. <laughs> so, how are you doing, Phil? Great. Thanks a lot for having me here. I'm excited to be to be here. Uh, I heard that I first heard about you because you were doing a panel with one of the past guests of guests of this podcast. I hope you can guess who. But what really interested me about what you're currently doing is that I don't think anyone has ever tried to do a sort of a plug and play solution for compliance. And I think that's really important as we see more and more innovation and more development in the blockchain space. So yeah, what can you tell us about what you're currently working on? Yeah, great. Um, yeah, so, so compliance is, it's such a, a complicated thing. Like most people, particularly in the crypto blockchain space, they're like, why do they want us to do all of this? It's like, it's really annoying. We're decentralized. We don't need to do any of these kinds of things. So, so for a long time, people have been fighting against it. And when people have been doing it, there's very often been this attitude. All right, we'll just do the minimum necessary to do it. Uh, but things, things are changing right now. So there is a, a there are kind of many different things changing where we need to, to think about compliance in a different way. And, 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 one, one big thing is that FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, which is the global, you can call them a global regulator. Officially, they are just a group that provides recommendations, but they, they really set the rules that all countries have to obey by. They have um, really sat down and tried to understand crypto and tried to understand how do they fit crypto into these new, into the way that compliance is done today with banks. Like what are the goals of how banks do perform anti-money laundering, those kinds of things today? How do you apply that to crypto? And I actually, you know, I actually think they've done a really good job with it. Um, but there aren't really any, that, any good tools that solves many of the requirements that they have. And that's where we set out, we, we, we come from crypto, we come from blockchain, we are not, people coming from external trying to impose things. We, we believe strongly in the ideas and philosophy of crypto. Uh, my co-founder Andres and I, we both had, had early experiences with early exchanges, early Bitcoin. You know, we, we, we've been through the painful process of dealing with compliance and regulators, et cetera, ourselves. So we, 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 we are looking at solving in a way that solves issues for regulators but also still fit within the, the mission and goals and philosophy of the industry itself. So, so to do that, 
we really need to create a plug and play kind of solution. Otherwise, it becomes hard for people to figure out how to do compliance if, if you have to plug all kinds of different solutions together and, and do it all on your own. It's a, it's really, you hit the nail right on the head with that phrase because people tend to feel that decentralized means no regulation decentralized just means it's on the internet and I do whatever I want with that. How do you how do you help people that think like this reconcile these two these two ideas? So I mean one way of looking at it is that is that the technologies themselves are are not permissioned. Like Bitcoin is not permission. It's a decentralized technology. So is Ethereum and that's not going to change anytime soon. No regulator can really go in and, and say, you know, block Bitcoin. I mean, they could try, but it would they would probably not be very successful at it. And I think they know. And I'm talking with a lot of regulators, they're not out to do that either, right? But one thing, even if you come from a very, very libertarian or anarcho-crypto kind of background, you know, where you know, you have to also think about it, put in, in the way that you as an individual cannot be forced to do something rather. And in a business, you can't be forced to transact with someone either. So you need to know some basics about who you're transacting with. You need to be able to make decisions. So it's like, you know, um, like this permission, you know, this way that we can, we should be able to, to do things, you know, unlimited transactions, all the exchanges, all the banks need to be able to manage our transactions. Ideally, we would like to be able to do transactions any institution, but they have a right to say, no, I don't want to make, I don't want to do business with you because I can't figure out how to manage the risk that you bring along with this. And that sounds like in some respects, like it's incompatible, but it's not, we're not changing anything with the underlying technology. The underlying technology allows anyone to do whatever they want to do, individuals, all of these kinds of things, but businesses who are working with it, they do have some rules. They have, they run risks. Like if they, if they inadvertently uh, do, do business with, with someone, uh, you know, it's like, like, uh, with, with, with the vice president of Nicaragua, for example, like a, a country I know, I know very well personally, if they inadvertently do business with them, then who, that person who is on the sanctions list, that could be a, uh, in the, in the words of, of our lawyer, that's, that can be an extinction level event for a business, right? So that you don't want to go in and do, and, put your business at risk. So you need to be able to manage risk, but managed risk isn't about stopping things. Managed risk, I see it's more about enabling things. So it, everyone always looks at compliance as the negative kind of thing. And if you look at the stories that blockchain companies have had with banks, for example, I can see that, I completely get that. I've, I felt it myself, like, like I've had services, you know, bank, services shut down and stuff like that. I, I, I get that it feels really bad, but using blockchain, using crypto, using some of the technologies that we're, that we're working on and some of the protocols people are doing, we're actually creating a, a way more inclusive way of dealing with this than, than what happens in the traditional uh, banking industry. And I actually think this is why many of the regulators are actually not trying to ban crypto. They're not trying to ban Bitcoin because they, there are a lot of benefits having a public ledger that the, that the governments can see, 
right as well and you you could also and, say that right now if if someone tries to if someone tries to go out right and try to ban bitcoin they more or less look like the next hitler right like it, the, the eyes of everyone are gonna turn yeah. like why are you trying to ban this now and because of what right at yeah. this point in time i think there is no stopping this kind of thing yeah exactly But, but I also think we need to look at this also a little bit more than just about compliance. So it's about managing risk, but it's also about being able to do business or, or, uh, or for an individual to be able to perform a Bitcoin transaction, send money, you know, like uh, send money to, to, to your uncle or your grandma using Bitcoin in a way that you've, you can actually, you know that the money is going to get to your grandma when you send it uh, to her. And, and if you send it just using the basic Bitcoin technology right now, just using an address, sending a transaction, it's very, it's a bit scary. I've, I got into Bitcoin about 10 years ago. I'm still scared every time, every single time I go to an exchange and I withdraw funds or I, or I send funds to an exchange from like my Ledger Nano or something like that. I'm, I'm scared, oh, am I doing this? this right so something you know because all i have is this address and that address could be faked what happens in the javascript underneath i know enough so i'm like freak i'm right every time i do it the, the, the more okay. you know the more scared you can get yeah exactly exactly but i'm also imagining someone who's used to used to like like in africa using m-pesa where you just send money to a phone number and this is a phone number that you know right or paypal you send money to an email address This is something that that you understand, people understand. But sending money to this cryptic address that you may have, that you can't even give to someone over the phone or anything like that, is a scary kind of thing. And and adding a a, a privacy preserving kind of identity layer or a counterparty layer, as we call it, on top of on top of blockchain transaction, actually starts making it a lot more use, useful for just for normal people as well. But But for businesses, even more so. I remember, and well, quick point on the on the part of being scared about sending transactions. It is a bit weird. And the other day, someone in our office sent a transaction wrong, and the money got lost. And we were like, "Man, you work in crypto." But that just shows you that the process is a bit hard. Like the process, you can very easily make a mistake along the way, and and you get into trouble and yeah. it's not like if you're sending a bank transaction where hopefully your mistake is one of those mistakes where it bounces back and nothing happens here you're completely lost yeah i remember back in the day when we used to go to crypto conferences and we had a qr code on the back of our business cards and no mm -hmm. one would ever know how to scan them <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, man, you're you're supposed to be adopting crypto, and you don't know how to how to scan a QR code. And yeah. now it's it looks like restaurants solve that problem by themselves. But I guess like <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, you must be having a lot of issues uh, with small things like this that you have to work with every day. What other yeah habits are you trying to build? with people in order to be able to trust these payment systems? So 
really what we're trying to do is 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 the I mean the core of what we're building right now is is a way of being able to identify the counterparties behind the transaction that you are part of. And this is, and when I say counterparty, counterparty is is like it's typically it's basically the other side of a transaction. And when we work, when we're talking about a wallet to wallet transaction, it will just be who you're sending that to. But if you're talking, if you are sending a sending funds to a an exchange, the exchange is, is your counterparty here. Uh, and if you're from an exchange, you're sending fund to another exchange, then there are multiple parties involved in this particular in, in this particular transaction. And at all of these points, you really need to know who it is that you're actually interacting with. Uh, so th this is actually the core of, of the travel rule, which is which is one of the more controversial parts of the new regulation that's coming out globally right now. But I, I when I first heard about it, I was probably equally as skeptical as others. But I have also been trying to solve a Dewport before. How do we map identities to blockchain addresses in a privacy-preserving way? And and the travel rule really requires you to solve this. Can and you I, can, can, can you please go into detail about the traveler rule? Yeah. So the travel rule essentially it's it's not a new rule at all. It's a new rule for crypto, but it's not a new rule. It's 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 been around for a long time. Uh, so when you when you send a swift transaction from your bank, right? From let's say you know from Barclays in the UK to to Citibank in the US. Uh, Barclays sends information to Citibank about you as your as a customer, and uh, to the receiving bank. And this is done through the SWIFT network today. And then the settlement in traditional payment happens very different than it does on on, on blockchain. So settlement is just it's completely. Um, I like to call it. I always used to call it like the. The real darknet, like the way settlement takes place in traditional banking, because it's very, very different, difficult to follow funds directly through a settlement transaction, because it's it's not really directly related to the actual payment that that you're doing. So, so there's there's this need for Swift to send information about who's the customer that's receiving this, who's the institution it's going to, who are you as an as an institution, and who is your customer. And then they perform various kinds of compliance and risk analysis on it. It's not all compliance, but it's also general. Like, is this a, you know, is this a, is this a crook? Is there some kind of like other kind of risk involved with this particular kind of thing? And if and 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 the travel rule is really about just sending that information along. But one big mis misunderstanding a lot of people have around the travel rule, that the travel rule isn't there because of the travel rule. It's not. The reason that regulators want you to do this isn't because you should implement the travel rule. It's because you need, as a, as a business, you need to be able to have a proper AML, like anti-money laundering and KYC kind of process. And if, you, if, if you're just sending, it may be that you're KYCing your customers like most exchanges do today, but the minute that they send the funds, you you might as I mean you can easily be sending it to the Nicaraguan vice president, you know, without you know anyone knowing, and then all of a sudden you you basically you know 
you've you've broken the sanction your sanctions check duties and you and you can have big fines or get shut down so it, it's it's a risky kind of thing so really all of this is is about the regular saying regulator saying you need these tools to be able to to perform AML and sanctions check and all of these kinds of things. You don't have those tools today, so you need to implement the travel rule to do so. And, and, and that's what this is about. It's actually about giving, giving businesses the tools to, to actually manage their risk specifically. And, and that's, I think that's the big, that's the big, um, the big thing that people are missing here. It's not really about you have to transfer this information. And yes, strict, strictly speaking, it is, but it's about being able to solve a, another purpose. And, and, and there are many other purposes with that you can solve with this. So for example, if you are like, um, if you just look in, in, in e-commerce, for example, if you integrate Stripe and they perform a payment, they get information about the customer. Your customer gets information about you as a merchant. All of this is through something through essentially a counterparty layer that is, is routed through the MasterCard and Visa network. Swift payments, all of these kinds of things go into, you know, supply chain, trade finance, you know, invoicing systems, all of these kinds of things. And you can't do any of these things without a counterparty layer on top of transactions. And this is, I, I actually believe this is one of these things that we, we've been very blind in the industry. And I'm completely guilty of this myself, but I remember like five, six years ago, arguing like why, you know, people should be using Bitcoin for e-commerce, but how can you use Bitcoin for e-commerce if you can't actually map it to your customer? You can use it for a few small use cases, but if I'm trying to ship something and what about if I don't receive whatever it is from, you know, crypto Amazon that, that I ordered, how can I actually get, you know, how can I prove to my payment processor? I mean, I can't because it's on a, on a, on a blockchain, but there are all of these things that are missing from a basic Bitcoin transaction or Ethereum transaction that you, re you really need this layer to be able to do. I mean, and in the case of, for example, because I'm sure you must have thought about this problem, um, how does your solution, for example, would operate in a world where, where sovereign identity on the blockchain is already a thing? Yeah, so they, I mean, it, it, it would work quite quite well because um, it's not like sovereign identities. First of all, sovereign identities, they they should be tied to a blockchain, but they should not live on a blockchain. That's a um, because it's blockchains are not really good at man, at managing privacy. So you need to it's blockchains are really the opposite of privacy. So really right. what you need to do is have an identity that a, that a user uses that can then be tied to a blockchain in a privacy preserving way. So I think it actually works quite well with this because self-sovereign identity actually solves many of these issues as well, particularly when you start tying it to blockchain transactions. Correct. And I was going to ask you, but you kind of replied to it with, with the example of the vice president of Nicaragua. What would happen if one would break the traveler rule? But yeah, th that's the case when this happens, right? Like you can <laughs> at the very least get yourself a sanction and in the worst case be financing terrorism without knowing it, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, so, so different countries have, have different rules. Like there are some, some regulators who are starting to institute new licensing schemes, based, again, based on the recommendations from the FATF. Um, so Singapore, for example, they have a new uh, license called the PSA license, which is one, uh, it's, it's a um, very hard license to get, but, but Singapore is a really important jurisdiction. So a lot of our customers are applying for that right now. And one of the requirements for this is to have solved the travel rule. So you need to prove that you have solved the travel rule. Um, the U.S. regulator, they're taking a slightly different approach to it. So FinCEN is the U.S. regulator, and they, they essentially say, well, they, they actually say that, strictly speaking, all crypto exchanges should have been doing the, implementing the travel rules since 2013. Um, but, I mean, they haven't really enforced it, enforced it yet. But um, the way that they are, they look at it is more kind of like, I think, a more outcome-based approach, approach where they're saying, these are the outcomes that we see, that we want to see. Like, essentially, we want you to see blocking transactions to people on sanctions list, et cetera. You need to be able to prove, prove that you're doing this. And I don't know, I'm not enough of a lawyer to know what happens if you miss one or two, as long as you can prove you had the processes in place to be able to do it. But right. I think what my understanding is that they're very focused on, on you being able to, in an examination, show you have a process to go through this. Um, so if, you, if there's this, this systemic kind of, you know, case of money laundering or, or something like that, as as we have seen, I mean, with frankly, I mean, banks have run into this problem many times, right? We've seen many big banks, uh, like Danske Bank in my home country of Denmark. They they had a very very extreme case with systemic money laundering um, through a subsidiary that wasn't caught uh, through the processes in their in their parent country, uh, in the parents um, parent company. So these are the kind of things where where you start getting huge fines and in some cases like some really bad cases you know jail as well in the us every country is different the way they do it but the us is very focused on outcome kind of the outcome from it so it's not going to be an excuse that oh i don't know how to check who's behind this address they don't care about excuses they're like they they care that you're working on a solution you are figuring out how to do this and for them, the travel rule is one of those solutions. And another one that we're going to hear a lot more about uh, over, the, over the coming year is uh, wallet identifi identification, where essentially you prove that a non-custodial wallet, like in Ledger Nano or Trezor or MetaMask, uh, is owned by your customer. And, and um, so this is a new requirement. It's not really, strictly speaking, a travel rule. Uh, around the travel rule, but it's FATF came out with some very vague recommendations around it in the same, you know, in the same guidelines where they came out with, where they mentioned that you have to implement the travel rule, but it's, it has to be really implemented hand in hand with the travel rule. Because if you are withdrawing funds from an exchange, you need to see, is this a travel rule? Like, is this, is this, a, a transaction going to another exchange, in which case the travel rule is required, or is it going to a customer's own wallet, in which case you now need to prove that this is actually your, your customer's wallet. And does this apply to just a specific, uh, 
to companies in specific fields or does it apply equally to everyone? Because I mean, I know that these kind of regulations are pretty much impossible to, to enforce once it's me sending 10 bucks to my friend, right? But at what scale does this become an issue? Yeah, so I mean, this is for 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 regulated businesses. So if you are if you are an exchange, uh, and the, every country has kind of different rules around it. FATF, their overall guidelines say that uh, they come up with a term VASP or virtual asset service provider. But you'll hear, hear the term VASP a lot. Of course, many other regulators they come up with their own versions of it. You know, CAS, crypto asset service provider. This, but it's it's. It's basically, do you, are you a, I mean, the, the real basic rule is, do you hold, um, do you ever hold funds on behalf of a customer? Right. Like, do you hold, do you hold keys on behalf of a customer? And uh, so custodial wallets, institutional custodial services are covered. Uh, any kind of exchange, it doesn't matter if it's crypto to fiat or crypto crypto. In the past, it was only crypto fiat that was covered by this, but now, now crypto crypto also, uh, and certain token issuance services. Uh, now, one of the one of the more one of the slightly different ways of looking at it is is in the U.S., where there, of course, there are many different kinds of regulators. So FinCEN, who is primarily concerned with uh, what they call money service businesses, are they they take a very technology technology agnostic view on, of it. And this is one of those areas where it could start affecting um, things like DeFi and, and DEXs. There are some, some people who think that it may start affecting even non-custodial wallet oper uh, operators as well. Because uh, they, they take the approach that they are technology, FinCEN takes approach that they're technology agnostic. So if you are, if you are helping a user transmit funds, then you are a money transmitter. That's essentially their 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 overall view. And if you are a money transmitter, and it's an habitual kind of thing. So if you're just sending funds to a friend or helping a friend do something or other, that's not a problem. But if you're if really your business is doing this, then you are a a a, a money service business and a and a and need a FinCEN license and have to obey these rules. And they've actually had cases where people on, on uh, you know, some of the, bit, on the Bitcoin exchanges, like, you know, the Bitcoin bulletin boards, like, um, uh, I forget the name of, of the most famous one right now. Um, um, well, people who are offering to sell Bitcoin on, on, on services have, Right, the, local bitcoins, you mean, right? Local bitcoins, yeah. exactly. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, there, there have been cases where where they have have had sting uh, operations against people on local bitcoin um, because they were, in their view, these are people who are obviously doing this as a business. Even if it's, a <laughs> it's, it's very, it's very hard to claim that that's not your business when you have yeah. four hundred transactions on yeah. local bitcoins. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So, 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 you know, yeah, you know, people may not like this, but, but also, I mean, FinCEN, I think they, they are, in general, they've been, they've had a pretty pro crypto stance. People may not like what they come up with, but I think they've really taken a lot of time to understand the technology. 
we, there, there's a lot of rumors happening about new things that are going to come out uh, soon. We'll see what those are. Um, but generally speaking, so far, um, I've been, you know, mostly mostly okay with you know with with a lot of the things that, that requirements that they have just today the rumor that came out and this is just like a fresh one i was reading it when i was waiting for this interview uh, the newest rumor is that ethereum 2.0 is gonna cause the cryptocurrency to be considered a security which would completely break the whole thing did you ever hear anything about that uh no i haven't heard that i mean eth2 is not the same as eth2 ETH is not ethereum so if right uh i'm not sure i haven't heard that rumor but um that would be an interesting thing i mean if you actually look at the way the community has been pushing it i could understand why sec would be would would look at it um but i i honestly i i i yeah, I haven't I haven't heard that. It'll be very interesting. Um, I do think, generally speaking, as a community, we have to be a um, a little bit better at talking about the reality about what we do. And I do I do think um, we've been bad at doing that in the past. Like there, we had the ICO bubble, right? Where you know, which was obviously crazy everything that was going on. There was obviously a lot of fraud going on. And there's a lot of things like that happening in the community and we have to be better at using terms like decentralized correctly. Right, uh, and, and knowing yeah. when it is decentralized and when it is distributed, etc. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you recently raised uh, raised capital for your for mm -hmm. your company, successfully so. Congrats! Thank and you. it's very interesting because for me and for most people, I guess, plug and play and regulation are not two things that go together like ever. So, is this a triumph of? a bright idea that got execute, executed correctly? Is this because um, the people that have trusted you to invest in you have decided that these are the kinds of solutions that we need? And is this also, uh, does this also speak that the rules are being designed in order to enable these kinds of solutions more and more? Or what can you tell us about this? Um, I mean, the industry needs a way of, of being able to start comply with these rules pretty quickly. Uh, and, and it's been it's been a huge problem. Like, for example, when this travel rule came up, right, there is there is five, there are five or six public open source protocols with white papers showing how to implement the travel rule. Um, but the people who actually have to implement it are the compliance teams. So um, to be able to actually start complying with this, you have to get the technical team together. They have to analyze all of these different protocols. And we've, we've heard many stories with, with compliance officers who are really, really good at their job at dealing with the compliance, but they've been handled, handed like technical white papers and pick one, right? And just that on its own is, is, a, difficult, in a, dif is a difficult thing. Uh, then you have to get you know the technical team involved you have to build up 
um, compliance procedures. You have to figure out how to manage the risk. What does the travel rule even mean? How does it integrate in all of our existing tools? How does it integrate in our back end? How does it integrate in our front end? This is why it, it really is something that um, it's not a simple thing to solve. So we, we, we came into it where with the approach that you need to solve this in a holistic way. And you can't do that by just going for a, creating a competing protocol or something like that. You really have to look at what do you actually need to be able to solve a travel rule. So, I mean, it's, it's plug and play in a way that it's fairly easy to plug into your, to both your back and front end uh, for, for, a, a, um, for a VASP. Compliance officers, we help them uh, build, build rules to be able to, to manage their transactions. Um, but there, I mean, there's still a lot of work. Every client officers, I mean, you can't just, we can't just have a set of, of default rules and say, and, and, and compliance officers just trust that we did this correctly because it's honestly, it's their, it's their legal liability uh, that they check that everything is done correctly. So we also come from the approach that we, we are not setting default rules. We're not telling people how to do things. We're giving people the tools for them to figure out how to do this themselves, but not having to worry about the technical aspects of it is a really important part of it. Mm -hmm. And for, I mean, for, for us, like mo most of people that don't work in compliance, how how hard is actually the technical part? How how much technical like, knowledge does it actually take to be able to comply as opposed to just develop a project without any compliance? Yeah, so that, I mean, there's an, if you were to if you were to build all of this yourself, right? So first of all, you would need to uh, select one or more travel rule protocols, and there are multiple: TRP, OpenVASP, Treza, US Travel Rule Working Group. Um, there, there are several of these protocols. You have to pick one first, and then maybe implement multiple. Then you have to set up nodes to connect to them. You have to build your your then you have to figure out how to integrate this into your backend. You have to set rules and like the compliance team and the technical team have to work back and forth. How do we manage creating these rules? So what we do in, oh, and you also need a compliance dashboard. Um, so yeah, which is another, just another piece of tooling that, that you have to build internally in, in most cases. So what we do is that we take care of the majority of that. And, uh, and, and the basic part of, of implementing it from a technical point of view is in your backend, when you are about to send a transaction, you just call an API on our, on, on, on our servers uh, with some information about this transaction. And then we take care of, of most of the rest. There, there's also a, there are some decisions to be made around a transaction. So, uh, to do a full implementation, you also shouldn't send the actual funds immediately, but that's not that big a problem because most exchanges already have some kind of risk management tooling in there. So we, we then communicate status back based on the risk uh, that the risk measures that the compliance officer has, uh, has set to, to their back to the exchanges backend, and then you can just send it as, as normal. And 
I mean, we were speaking. We were speaking about rumors before, and there's always something, right? We always have a, a bunch of those, and I guess as of now, they don't impact the regulation room that bad, right? Like, or at least you don't see anything particularly life-changing coming from the regulators room soon, right? As opposed to other times, like let's say 2017, where we just saw that that we might be facing the possibility of whole crypto going into nothing. Do you see any risks ever, any important risks coming from the regulatory room for the whole crypto environment ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, I mean the the thing about the thing about the regulatory risk for crypto as a whole right now is is that crypto has proven itself, but is only is that it's very early days, and the fact that the regulators are interested in it right now actually shows that crypto is close to to um, uh, as as Silicon Valley types often say. Uh, it's close to crossing the chasm into, into mainstream usage. And for it to get there, the regulators are for sure uh, going to be monitoring things. And we can't go ahead just acting, particularly when we're building businesses uh, on top of this technology. We can't go on and act like we, we don't have to think about these kinds of things. But it's it's... So yes, we have to look at what the regulators are doing, and and many. Uh, to be honest, many many exchanges are are frustrated by the travel rule, and particularly this new rule with proving the ownership of wallets is is a scary thing. These are these are things that seem scary for the industry, and I completely get it because it's very. It seems contrary to what what we have been about as an industry, but they. When we actually start looking at the benefits that you get from it, I actually think this is going to be a boost for for the industry. Now, there, there are some new technologies that you know everyone's been talking a lot about, uh, particularly this year, such as DeFi and, and, and Nexus and all of these kinds of things, and um, and there's a lot of misunderstandings. Both amongst both amongst regulators, amongst banks, but they're even probably the, the place where they're more most misunderstanding about this technology and regulators is amongst the DeFi community itself. Um, and as an industry, I mean, the crypto industry, and I well, I'll specifically talk about the DeFi industry right now. Really needs to think closely about what they're doing right now. They need to. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of space to continue innovating on this, but you can't just hide under this decentralized, you know, everything, uh, <laughs> everything right? So, so, uh, and and the regulators know this. I was I was at a I was at a, a, a call with a lot of regulators, and I heard the regulators say, "How can a company that's based in Silicon Valley?" that's got funds from like major investors, how can they claim that they can run an exchange and not be subject to the same rules as any other exchange, right? And, and, and there's been this myth of decentralization uh, in the blockchain community and, and in some respects, Ethereum, because Ethereum allows you to do way more complex things than, than Bitcoin. It's a, it's a bit easier to do this, but if, if you if you are creating something on top of Ethereum 
and you can go in and make changes to it. If you, if you talk about it on Twitter, if you have your ENS name tied to your Twitter account, if you go to conferences talking about it, if, you, if the VCs that invested in you talk about you and retweet what you're doing, all of these kinds of things. I mean, are you really decentralized? I don't, you know, it's like at one layer, you may be decentralized. Your business logic is running in a decentralized way. But are you actually decentralized? You know, is, you, the industry needs to start asking themselves questions like that. And if they really want to focus on full, full decentralization, then there are some, you know, very different, we, we need to think differently around this. But it's not, I don't think it's all doom and gloom because I think there's solutions for a lot of these kinds of things. We, we, we're already working on a lot of solutions internally to be able to um, allow people in the DeFi space to continue to innovate in a, in a per permissionless way, yet still comply with many of these rules that are coming. And, and, and if, we look at, if we look at you as regulators, for example, they, they've always said the same thing. We're technology agnostic, right? If you're offering securities, then you're offering securities. It doesn't matter the technology. If you're transmitting payments, then you are, you know, a money transmitter. If you are, are, are you know, if, if you are issuing derivatives on a blockchain, it doesn't matter that it's on a blockchain. You are, you are, you know, it's a CFTC would like to chat with you, right? Um, and this is how we need to look at these kinds of things. So it's about managing risk. It's not about stopping innovation. Um, but it's all, it's generally a lot of this is is more than anything is about making these tools also safer, safer for for safer for for end users and being able to just you know publish stuff without a security audit posted to twitter and then you know next week having lost you know 15 million dollars is i mean maybe you know it's a learning it's, a, it's you know it's a learning uh, <laughs> learning opportunity right but it's and it's good that we learn from these kinds of things but it's also about let's also start getting some things into production into real places where this technology can actually help. And I think DeFi has some amazing, there's some amazing innovation going on. And if we get this into hands of, of actual real end users in a safe way, I think, I think it's, it's going to start changing the world. There, there's a lot of that. There, there's a lot of we're decentralized, but we're not fully decentralized. But this part of our project is decentralized and the rest is not. And yeah. th then you get into that territory that you mentioned. And you've mentioned it twice. And I think it's very important to talk uh, right now, of course, but as a community about that, what are we considering decentralized and what is it decentralized for? Um, mm -hmm. Because, right, just doing something inefficiently just because it's decentralized is not the best way to go about things. And then some things like Bitcoin need to be decentralized in order to be what they are. But do you think the things that are fully decentralized and that should be decentralized should just be left alone by regulators or what? How can we, how can we live in a world where things are decentralized? Because Bitcoin, I think is the first thing that we see that is fully decentralized mm -hmm. as itself. And for most of its lifetime, no one has known exactly what to do with it. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's, it's not really, it's not that new a problem. I mean, this is another thing, like I've been in the, in the, I've been working in the internet space for a long time. Like I've been in the web since the very early days and, and 
this this may sound strange for most people in the in the in the blockchain space but the internet is kind of like one of the original decentralized technologies before that there was usenet there's a bunch uh, uh actually no usenet probably came after the internet but there have been many different kinds of uh, kinds of decentralized technologies in the past all of them have their pros and cons and all of them solve specific things and people talked about the internet as well how can we have this wild technology that can't be controlled people found in countries found ways of controlling it and then people found you know ways of getting around that control so it's always been like a cat and mouse kind of game right. and bitcoin and ethereum are you know they are they are decentralized and and uh, at least the u.s regulators they have i mean specifically said that they're that you know this technology is fine right so they they are they are not out to shut any of these kinds of things down there may be other regulators who would like to shut things like this down, but most of the major regulators aren't, and and they they actually like it, like this this kind of technology. One would argue that the other side of that, though, is that you've never had decentralized things that make money for people, and th that is where the conspiracy theorist comes out and says that that's why they don't want you to touch it. But see, even that I would actually disagree with. I mean, first of all, we have cash, right? Cash is, is the ultimate decentralized payment method. Yes, there's a centralized issuer somewhere, but you know the payments are done peer-to-peer, -peer, in person. They're completely decentralized. And the commerce that you're doing there is also completely decentralized. It's actually a lot more decentralized if you if you if you if if you think about it. Like for example, Think about a, you know, if, if, we, if we just forget about, you know, modern supermarkets, all of these kinds of things, but just think about a world, a traditional world with lots of markets, just markets where people go in and trade and, and exchange, you know, uh, you know, dollar bills or, or whatever for, for apples and oranges, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. The, these kinds of transactions happen all the time and they're way more decentralized than Ethereum is. I mean, the transaction, it's each transaction itself is on its own. You know, it happens between two people, right. but it's a very, it's a very, very decentralized system. It's way more decentralized than, than the blockchain could ever be. So it's, 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 you know, you know, we, we've, we've been enamored in a way that, that blockchain, that blockchains are this ultimate decentralized kind of goal. And I actually think it's probably better to have lots of different kinds of, of, of decentralized technologies. I mean, Bitcoin is, yes, it's decentralized in the modern way of looking at, there's no one place you can go in and shut it down. It's, it's, a, very, it's a difficult thing to shut down anyway. Maybe China. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I heard a podcast the other day where actually it seems like China isn't actually where most of the mining power, power, power is nowadays anyway, but it's, it's it, things like this move along around. But if you look from a centralized point of view, I mean, yes, it's difficult to shut it down. So in that case, it's perfectly decentralized, but it's also perfectly centralized in that every single node has the exact same state. So if there are many different ways of viewing this, where in, in, a, in, a, in a traditional cash commerce system, there isn't a central source of truth, but there's tons of tons and tons of sources of truth, which is like the wallet all the wallets of all the people 
around the actual source of truth is who who actually has the, the dollar bill in their wallet and and so so you know it's 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 complicated it's not an easy kind of thing but you know let's Bitcoin, Ethereum is decentralized in one layer, but in some other, there it also brings a lot of benefits, but a lot of these benefits are also not, can also be problems. And that, that's also in Bitcoin's white paper, right? And that's the first thing you see. It's a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, right? In Bitcoin was originally supposed to be electronic cash. And then <laughs> I, I don't think... And it, of course, it's super hard to know what people were, were thinking or what Satoshi, if it was just one person or whatever, was thinking it got to, it was going to get to the place that it got right now, right? It's 20 years down the line and and you just don't know. And of course, the authorities were going to get in the middle somehow. But, and uh, to start wrapping up the, to start wrapping up the interview and to finish the topic on decentralization and regulation what would you personally be looking forward to see coming from regulation where do you think uh, things should head towards with your experience and being right there in the middle of things i think the i mean the regulation should should be focused on on um and really helping give the industry the tools to be able to comply with existing regulation it shouldn't be it should it should be patient as well and i mean a lot of regulators are very patient uh and like fincen in the us has actually shown a lot of patience some other regulators are less patient but i think i think being open to look at how the industry solves this solve the problems is a really important step and the regulators i mean fatf they have regular meetings with people from the industry that we and others attend and they're very open to talking with us with us and hearing solutions about this so for example when when if they're worried about peer-to-peer -peer transactions there are people from our industry who would very who can actually show the numbers that they shouldn't really be worried about it because the transact the stats show that it's not actually a high risk thing to, to, to worry about. So so as an you know the regulator should should uh, I mean for sure they have their mandate they have things that they have to do, um, but they should also be patient with the industry and they should listen to the industry about uh, come up with ways of solving solving these issues. But I mean, that's also a double-edged sword that also gives us as the industry the responsibility to work on solving these issues. Because if we don't work on solving the issues, and frankly, as an industry, we haven't been solving these issues. And, and the DeFi, current DeFi space is a classic example of this, where the, where the industry is saying, we decentralize, you know, we don't have to do any of this kind of thing. But um, I mean, there are people in, the, in DeFi that are working on solving these issues. So it's not the whole industry that's like that. But we also need to actually be open to work with the regulators. So the regulators should be should listen to us, but if we're not willing to talk with them and not willing to, to help solve some of their problems and help openly talk about it, uh, I think it's going to end bad for for all sides. And and thankfully, I think I thankfully I'm not seeing a lot of that. At least that the most of the traditional crypto industry has been very active talking with regulators. We are, companies like Chainalysis are, 
Um, we, we are really, you know, trying to help explain things to the regulators. But I mean, also, as I mentioned before, FinCEN, for example, FATF, they have very, very smart people there who have actually, who have a good understanding of the technology as well. Do you ever get the, do you ever get the flip side? Like having to explain things to not very, to not very smart or not very interested or not very engaged people in regulation? Uh, actually, no. Uh, I. And you know, I've never had that experience so far. Even even way back in the day, like when my I, I ran a startup Kipochi in Kenya, where we're doing Bitcoin mobile money, and I was called in to explain Bitcoin to the regulators, to the central bank, and it was it was a good open conversation where they were just trying to learn. They were not, you know, what the hell are you doing? You know, all of, it was like there was it was actually a really good conversation, and they. I was grilled for sure, but <laughs> but it's it's uh, but but most regulators they they are they have you know they have their their the things that they're worried about. So in many cases, they're they're political things within a country that they have to worry about. Uh, for many many countries, like uh, are worried about FATF, uh, like the, the Financial Action Task Force, putting them on the black or gray list. So they're worrying about oh we need to we need to obey these recommendations because we're already in already in trouble because of the way our banks are are are, are doing things and 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 the gut reaction for some of these might be oh we don't need to understand this let's just ban all of it right and that you could and, and in some respects you can see it they don't have time because they are like busy cleaning up their banks or something like that they don't have time to deal with this new crypto thing. But the great thing, FATF is actually taking the time to research this and come up with a good framework that's relatively simple to implement. I'm not saying it's easy to implement, but it actually explains to the regulators what crypto is, what the block blockchains are, what the risks are, and a proposed framework for solving it. Um, but generally speaking, the regulators have been pretty open to it. Also, people from traditional banking, but um, traditional banking is also still a place where you do see see some maybe more people who who don't quite understand it, but less and less as well. Most of the people that um, that uh, I'm talking to are. I thought I turned off notifications. Let me just. Um, there, but um, you, you've received yeah. very few WhatsApps in this hour. I'm impressed. <laughs> Mine would be just going and going and going. <laughs> okay, so um, I mean, yeah, dismissive is the word that I will that I would always what I would describe what I imagine like being sitting in a regulating room. But in the end of the day, well, you're right. They're trying to. They're, they're trying to keep things running, right? They're not trying mm -hmm. to shut things down for no. shutting things down sake. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they, are, they are worried about, you know, people looking at their country being a, you know, being a money laundering center or something like that, you know, and then that can, that can affect many, many different things. It can affect your bond rating. It can affect your bank's access to international international markets into the SWIFT network, it can affect a whole bunch of things. And they're rightfully worried about these things. They're also worried about, I mean, you know, they're worried about terrorist financing. They're worried about, you know, uh, the reputational risk of, of being part of, 
of you know hiding money for for dictators um those kinds of things and, and they you know they're right to be worried about this because you know every time we just look at the panama papers whenever there's something like that that comes up it it, it it it's a massive you know it's a big publicity problem for a country when something like that pops up and uh not just a publicity problem but, but it, it creates problems for the entire financial industry of, of a country when these kinds of things happen so they 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 have a right to be worried and and i actually think most of them are in my experience they've been decent people worried people and they're trying to understand the technology and the ones who don't are just because they have so much on their plate right now they just don't have time to deal with all of this crypto nonsense i mean to be you know quote quote because they've got bigger bigger things to deal with right now right and 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 and, and i get that but most of the large regulate regulators they have teams that are really studying crypto they're understanding it they're building up the frameworks and they are completely open and 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 happy to talk with people I mean, and if one happens to learn organically, if you've been in the crypto environment for four years, five years, seven years, 20 years, uh, if you've been for a long time here, you sort of feel like it should be easy to understand things, but try dealing with people that are just learning and then you just see mm -hmm. the, the amount, the sheer amount of information that you need to digest yeah. to, to do so. And then the noise that comes in every day that might not end up be rele being relevant, but can be. So, exactly. Pell, where can people learn more about Notabene and about everything you're doing? Yeah, our, our website is notabene.id, N-O-T-A-B-E-N-E.id. -E uh, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter, P-E-L-L-E-B. P -E -L -L -E -B. And um, please reach out. We are, we are, 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 are working with with crypto businesses from around the world. Uh, we're not only working in countries where, with, with, with exchanges in countries where, where regulators are actively starting to enforce these things, but a lot of exchanges are reaching out to us, even in places where, where the regulators are busy with, with a bunch of other kinds of things because they want to be ready. Feel free to reach, reach out uh, to me personally uh, and um, either via Twitter or, 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 or from on our website. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to, to, uh, to talk with people in the industry and also have a debate about these subject matters because I know, I know a lot of this is, is controversial in the crypto industry and, and I'm very open to have a uh, open debate around, around these kinds of things. We're actually looking forward to hosting debates. So if you're already if you're already raising your hand, I can uh, I can make you promise that you'll come back for a debate one time. Sure, sure. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Pell, and thank you for for taking the time. Thanks to everyone that's still listening to this. If you have any questions about Notavene, reach out to Pell. If you want to learn more, go to their websites. Remember to like and subscribe to the channel. And well, we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks.